0: What would Jesus do is one question. What would Muhammad do could be something else entirely. An exploration of the terrain covered by these questions is coming up next. On ABC Radio National, you're listening to Counterpoint with Michael Duffy and Paul Comrie thompson Mark Durie is vicar of St. Mary's Anglican Church in Melbourne and a human rights activist. He has a particular interest in something we don't hear a lot about, the persecution of Christian minorities in Islamic countries. Mark has been a senior academic in the field of linguistics and language studies and a Harkness Fellow, and is the author of many books, including most recently The Third Choice, which is about Islam and freedom. Mark, welcome to the program. Thanks, Michael. Great to be with you today. Can you give us some just overview idea of the extent of the persecution of Christian minorities?
1: I think a recent study suggested that um, two-thirds of people that are persecuted for their faith in the world today are Christians. There's about 60 countries uh, in which Christians could be considered to be persecuted. And uh, uh, there are estimates uh, as much as uh, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands that are losing their lives uh, in um, in recent years, uh, so it's extremely serious, extremely serious issue. Um, some countries that persecute Christians are communist or former communist countries, such as Vietnam and China, Laos. Um, others are, are, are even Christian ma- magic, ma- mainly Christian states, such as Ethiopia. But the, the the greater majority of states that persecute Christians are Islamic majority states.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting. We don't hear much about it. Some of it's quite close to home, isn't it? For example, in Indonesia.
1: Yes, indeed. Um, about ten years ago, there were 500 internally displaced Christians from the activities of the of the Luska Jihad, a, a jihadi group there. Um, the the journal, journalists in Australia often, or in the West, often refer to these events as um, sectarian conflict. Uh, so we, we minimise and. Avoid engaging with the what's really happening on the ground by speaking about it as if it's sort of an argument between different different groups, and I think that's a, a gross disservice really to the the victims of those uh, those uh, contexts of those attacks.
0: What are some of the other countries with particular problems? I think uh, well, Egypt's got a bit of a record, hasn't it?
1: Yes, Egypt has a very poor record. Uh, there are in the last four months, there's been a whole string of attacks on Copts. Uh, uh, just some weeks ago, a, a church was burnt down and the uh, the radicals that had burnt down the church pulled down the cross and used the, the the bones of the martyrs as a football to play and turned the church into a mosque. Uh, so that's bad news. Um, uh, Saudi Arabia has more than half a million Christians living there and there's not a single place of worship. It's illegal even to meet as Christians in private and pray together there. Many, many countries, unfortunately, in the Middle East are really bad news for Christians.
0: Is it possible to, to generalise where this happens in Islamic countries and and say what the the attitude of the authorities is? Do they are they involved in the persecution? Are they opposed to it? Sometimes
1: they uh, protect Christians, and sometimes they take part as well. It's very complex. Uh, just recently, the army army soldiers opened fire on cops in Egypt and killed a number of them, and they were demonstrating. And then uh, at the same time, almost the same time, they went back to that church I spoke of that had been bombed and burnt down and, and offered to rebuild it for the Christians. So it's very conflicting. Um, it, uh, interestingly, some of the long-term dictators who've um, tried to balance different groups have have been better for Christians. So Saddam Hussein was pretty positive for the Christians in Iraq, but now they're in They're being completely decimated and uh, more than half of them have fled and they're being killed and and driven out in large numbers. Um, Hosni uh, Mubarak relied on Christians for support because they were frightened of the radical Muslims that were his enemy as well. Uh, But at the same time, the state uh, systematically discriminates against Christians. It's actually a very, very complex situation. One of the problems is underpinning that. There are certain principles in Islamic law that make it quite hard for Christians to get justice when they are attacked. And they become deeply embedded in culture and the state tends to take on those cultural characteristics as well.
0: I suppose one of the the issues here, isn't it, that the church and state are not separated in, in these Islamic countries in the way that they are in the West?
1: Yes, that is a problem. Um, Muhammad combined all sorts of power in one person, uh, whether it being a general or a leader of the faithful or chief justice um, and uh, king of the state. So Islam tends to follow his example and combine all forms of power and in fact, uh, Islamic theologians have criticised Christians for making, making that distinction, going back even to medieval times. But the problem for non-Muslims in an Islamic state is particularly acute because they get excluded from political and social processes because of, of that distinction. So you'll see many countries with Muslim majorities have written Sharia into their constitution, for example, Egypt or the new constitutions in Afghanistan and Iraq. And once you declare that the laws of the country to be based on Sharia law, that immediately puts non-Muslims in a disadvantaged and inferior position.
0: What's the position of Muslims who choose to live in the West, where, of course, there is this separation? Are there any um, you know, philosophical or other problems for them, given that Sharia law doesn't operate?
1: There's a very important debate going on. Uh, it's been going on for decades. Um, the... Is the International Islamic Fiqh Academy, which is a pig body set up to make rulings for Muslims around the world, considered the question in the early 80s of whether it's lawful for a Muslim to be a citizen of a democratic state at all? Um, The traditional uh, Islamic view was that you couldn't live in the lands of the infidel for more than a few nights, and you had to flee to an Islamic state if you could. And this created a huge problem with all the immigrations, a theological problem. And interestingly, many of the rulings that they collected, they never published a final uh, statement. But many of the rulings they collected said it was illegal for Muslims to be citizens of democratic states unless they're fleeing persecution or unless they're there to spread Islam. Uh, I think the, those positions are beginning to shift. And. Muslims are being, uh, in a way, forced to develop a theology of the common brotherhood of humanity or pe- the equality of people. But it's not easy. It goes against the grain. And there's certainly a, a very uh, well-articulated view that um, Muslims shouldn't live in states that are not Islamic states. And sometimes you'll even see strange things happening, like leading Muslims in the U.S. declaring that America is, an, is a better Islamic state than many Muslim states. And that helps them get around the problem of saying, oh, we're living in the lands of the infidel. <laughs>
0: I was going to ask you about that. I mean, is there an issue here with, with loyalty of Muslims living in Western states? But from what you've said, I, I suppose there's just a great variety of attitudes, isn't it?
1: there? There is a great variety. And uh, I think if you ask many Christians, they'd say their primary loyalty is to God. But they don't see the conflict in the way that some Muslims do, um, that they see their primary loyalty to the Ummah. This is the, the family of the Islamic community, one nation. Um, The Quran speaks uh, of Muslims, says you're the best nation that's been raised up for humanity. And if that identity is very strong and it it overrides national loyalty, it can create really big conflicts. Um, So Major Nidal Hassan in in the Fort Hood massacre, he was conflicted between his loyalty to America and his loyalty to the Ummah and to his theological principles. And it was the second that won out and caused him to, according to his own testimony really, uh, to to choose to fight against a fellow American soldiers So for some it can produce
0: quite extreme consequences You're listening to Counterpoint on ABC Radio National Where our guest is Mark Dury Who's Vicar of St Mary's Anglican Church in Melbourne A human rights activist Who has uh, has written and studied Islam in some considerable detail Mark, we're always told there's a great diversity of belief among Muslims And that extremists and the beliefs that sustain them are rare Is that true?
1: I don't think that's a fair description. I think it depends which country you're looking at. Um, the Pew Forum has done a number of polls in, in Western and Islamic states and found very high levels of what we might regard as extreme beliefs. Um, hundreds of thousands of British citizens that supported the, uh, the 7-7 bombing and felt it was a good thing in surveys. And a majority of of citizens in Egypt that want uh, Sharia law, um, so there's there's quite a strong uh, conservatism in in the Islamic world. I think we make a mistake by saying that um, extremism is the problem. I think Islam has a core, and it's a fairly clear core based on the life of Muhammad and his uh, his teaching and. Those that adhere closely to that core uh, shouldn't be called extremists, but the problem is their beliefs would, from a Western secular point of view, be thought of as extreme. That is that Allah should rule and the land should follow the the laws that Muhammad gave down 14 centuries ago.
0: And what would those core beliefs have to say about violence, the use of violence?
1: There's a range of different beliefs. Um, Muhammad went through different stages. And Earlier on in his career, um, God told him to forgive and overlook the unbelievers, but later he, um, he was told to uh, fight in defence and then later to fight against non-believers in general. And so Islam supports, uh, in the classical view, both defensive jihad uh, against attackers, but also expansionary jihad to implement and advance the Islamic State in order to pave the way for the propagation of Islam throughout the world. So that's been a fairly mainstream view. Um, Today, many Muslims living in the West, understandably, have backed away from the idea of expansionary jihad, but it's still uh, very widely adhered to across the Muslim world. Al-Azai University or the Supreme um, Leaders uh Religious leaders have not renounced this idea. And uh, Islam, I believe, is really unique amongst the major language, major uh, religions of the world in having a, a fairly well articulated view that violence uh, in, the, in the path of Allah or for the sake of Allah is, is a good thing. And uh, in fact, there's a view in Islam that, that every war should be a religious war and that it's a sin to fight a war except for Allah. And so normally, Islamic states, if their soldiers die in the war, they're always regarded as martyrs. Uh, both Iraq and Iran celebrated their casualties as martyrs. The Turks in the First World War, those that died, were martyrs. It's a standard view that if, you, if you're fighting for your country and you die, you're a religious martyr. So religion and, and warfare are very intimately in, entwined in the Islamic consciousness.
0: Some people have suggested the same thing is applied in the West in regard to the Bible. Um, do you think that's true or at least true to the same extent?
1: I don't think it's true to the same extent. Um, let me put it this way. In the first three centuries, Christianity was a minority faith and it didn't have a, um, a, a theology of violence for the sake of the faith. Um, it was the Theodos- Theodician and some of the Christian um, em- Roman empires later on who developed the idea of the use of compulsion to enforce Christianity. And then uh, I believe in part in reaction to the uh, to the jihad, which, for example, in Spain went on for eight centuries or so, um, those uh, Christians developed almost like a Christian jihad, the idea of holy war, where if you died in holy war, you'd be a martyr. And so the, the, the Spanish developed this in a big way, and they took it to South America and wreaked havoc of view that if they died in their battles they'd go to paradise. But there's no serious Christian that I know in the world today that, that holds that, that theology anymore. It was developed in a period of time. It's well past. You can't defend it from Jesus teachings. I mean, he did not give any, any clear basis for supporting an idea of religious warfare. Quite the contrary. It's a So I'd say when Christians fight or do violence in the name of God, they're going against Jesus. But when Muslims use violence in the name of Allah, they may well be, and often believe that they are, acting in accordance with Muhammad's instructions.
0: Yeah, so that's the situation today, isn't it? I suppose, in a sense, Christianity has moved on from that earlier position, and Islam hasn't.
1: That's true, and and it was not the first position of Christianity. It's not the core position of of Jesus' teachings. Um, And that's why I have a problem with the idea that there's a sort of natural evolution that happens that we all sort of move on in the end. I think if if you try and reform Islam by going back to the example and teaching of Muhammad, and you really have to do it that way to be coherent and, and have integrity from a religious perspective, you'll go back to the fact that he himself was a warrior and called for, for warfare. And so that keeps coming back. Whereas if you want to reform Christianity by going back to Jesus, you'll produce a more peaceful faith because Jesus was a man of peace, not a man of war.
0: Is that to some extent what happened in the Reformation?
1: Yeah, the Reformation definitely from the Christian point of view was a going back to the teachings of Jesus. A good example of a Catholic reformer was St. Francis who read that Jesus said you should give, sell what you have and give it away to the poor, so he did it. Uh, Luther spoke about the freedom of the German nobility. He quoted St. Paul, you know, for freedom Christ has set us free. So people looked to the New Testament and found principles that uh, enabled uh, change by going backwards. And you could think of it as a regressive movement. It went back to Jesus. It happened to uh, coincide. Some of the values of this movement did happen to go hand in glove with the with the Renaissance and, and other principles that were influencing people in Europe. And it wasn't, uh, it didn't cause backwardness, if you like. Uh, but the problem with, the difference really with Islam is that a reformation has been going on in Islam. And as Wali Ali said, uh, the result of it is Al-Qaeda. And <laughs> That's a really disturbing problem really for, for, for the world today
0: Really, is that right? So Al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda is uh, Islam's reformation <laughs> That's right they, they looked at Muhammad and what would it be
1: like to do exactly what he did And to follow yeah. his principles And this is what we produce What would Muhammad
0: do? Yeah. That's uh, the question What would Jesus do? What would Muhammad do? Both, mm-hmm. both, both followers asked that question And uh, I guess what you're saying is that they'd probably do something quite different Even despite this widespread notion we often have in the West That all gods are the same they would do something
1: very different. And uh, I think gods are sometimes more different than we are. We're uncomfortable about that idea, but really there are lots, millions of gods in the world, and believe me, they're not all the same. Mm. They require different sacrifices, different different values. I think the secular West has uh, really wanted to... Uh, protect itself from having to engage with faith and to make distinctions and it's not helping us at the moment in dealing with a a century in which religion will be much be the most important ideological issue and so we're ill-equipped for the challenge ahead of us but we have to engage
0: Mm. many christians seem reluctant to defend their own tradition in case they're accused of hypocrisy and the example of the crusades is often brought up do you think christians should regret the crusades
1: I think they should acknowledge that crusaders did some things that were reprehensible and wrong. I think um, some of the motivations for the crusades, which was to intervene in an environment where Christians were being severely persecuted, uh, in in lands where actually had been Christian lands for only a few had been islamic lands for only a few centuries and christians before that was was not unjustified um it was a it was a war that in its goals were, were i believe were just in many cases but that some of the things that happened were appalling and uh, i think the crusades has become like a stereotype of evil and religious evil in the minds of people today and you need a much more nuanced uh careful look at what actually was happening and the reasons for it and um, the constant jihad that uh, the Orthodox Christians in the East had been facing for centuries, inexorable uh, assaults and taking of slaves and attacks, so it was actually just one phase in a very long um, more than a thousand years of warfare and for various reasons cultural historical reasons it 's become a kind of iconic part of that uh, that tradition in the western mind but uh, it 's in my mind it 's just one phase in a very long a very long battle that more or less uh, In in many ways, the the Islamic Jihad proved successful. I mean, in the end, the the Orthodox, the the Constantinople was defeated, and uh, what they'd feared when they asked for help from the West actually came about.
0: Mark, you've got a very interesting blog, and we'll put a link to it up on the CounterPoint website. Uh, And one of the things readers or listeners will find if they go there. Is, uh, I think you've got a list of a number of, of very bad ideas, and I just thought I'd finish by asking you about two of them. The first is the claim that we often hear these days, that extremism is always wrong and that moderation is usually preferable. Indeed, it's the answer to so many of our problems. What do you think of that?
1: Yeah, it's a really bad idea. Um uh, extremism is is this the idea that if the world is flat and if you go too close to the edge, you'll fall off. So just stay in the middle and you'll be fine. So you shouldn't be anything too strongly, just sort of be a kind of moderate in the middle person. Now, if you're looking for a good surgeon, you wouldn't say, look, are you, are you a moderate surgeon? You're not too strict about hygiene and everything. You know, I'd, I'd like someone who doesn't take their job too seriously. Uh, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't choose a doctor on that basis, and it, it really lets us off the hook from having to make decisions uh, and and to make value judgments between competing ideologies and beliefs. And um, there was a view, a, a book written by Eric Hoffer called The True Believer in the fifties, and he argued that basically people just follow ideologies, but it's their extreme personalities. It's the cause someone who's a communist might be a fascist tomorrow. And uh, that's really that sort of outlook has made us not unwilling to look at the actual ideas. And you need to actually ask: Is this a good idea or a bad idea? And if it's a good idea, be strong about it. Don't be embarrassed. So, the language of extremism has been very disempowering and debilitating of us in terms of analysing
0: and, and being able to respond to ideas. And finally, Mark, what's your idea on progress in in general? Do things usually get better?
1: No, they don't. They go backwards and forwards, up and down. I mean, people thought the 20th century would usher in this wonderful century of social progress, but then you had Nazi Germany. Uh, the communists believed that uh, you know, history is moving forward, and, you know, and they produced uh, tens of millions of casualties of terrible regimes. We still seem wedded to this idea of progress, that things will inevitably get better. Um, They don't. Human nature is very uh, flawed. And if we have a utopian view that history is evolving and uh, change is always going to be better, we'll be blind to a lot of the threats and challenges that are faced. Sometimes things in the past were better. Sometimes they weren't. We can't assume that if you just leave religions alone, they'll all sort of become calm and moderate and beautiful. Politics doesn't work like that. Religion doesn't work like that. Humanity is not as uh, kind of naively blundering its way into a utopia as we tend to assume in, in the in the West today.
0: I think that's a good warning, Mark. We'll leave it there. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Mark Durie is vicar of St. Mary's Anglican Church in Melbourne and a human rights activist. His most recent book is The Third Choice, which is about Islam and freedom. That's it for us today. The program is produced by Ian Coombe. Our sound engineer is John Diamond, and I'm Michael Duffy. And I'm Paul Comrie thompson Bye for now.